The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts... John and Steven. Thank you. It's Cabinet of Comics. I'm your host, John Clark. I just got off a plane, so I'm a little bleary, but a lot happened this week, so I called Stephen Brown. We lost both Joe Sinnott and Joel Schumacher this week. Um, let's get into why those two people were important. Okay, I just uh, got in. Um, it seems like an impossibility in this day and age, but I just got back from the airport, and it's Sunday night, and we didn't record anything. Yeah. So we're recording something now. But I what went. Are, uh, what are airports like? <laughs> um, La- LaGuardia was quiet, although they just finished all the construction, so it's like it's a brand new airport with no okay. one in it. Yeah. Um, there's like screens everywhere and USB ports and like all these high end places to eat that are not staffed. So because of COVID and there weren't a lot of people in there. So it was weird. It w- it felt kind of walking deadish. That's weird. Um, Midway was pretty, was pretty crowded, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, beer babe just inspired me cause she flew into Chicago a couple weeks ago and she said, Hey, yeah, if you fly in, you get your own row and you wear your mask and no one bothers you and no one's in the airport. And she's right. Yeah. Like on the way in, I had a whole row. I sat in the middle and stretched out. I watched That's an episode nice. of Legion on my iPad. It was like having a couch. Yeah. And then on the way back, uh, I had the window seat and a guy had the aisle seat and, uh, I read, uh, I read like the Robin hundred page special. And then we were here. It was really easy. And New York is busy, but everyone is wearing a mask. Oh, wow. So it was as busy. I didn't go into Manhattan. um, And I didn't go to Rockaway, which is where the beaches are. The beaches aren't open yet. But I just went around like Greenpoint and Brooklyn and Long Island City and Astoria. And people were out. But every single person had a mask on. That's incredible. So, um, you're just getting by, just doing it. So, yeah, I, was, I mean, I think that's kind of like hopefully everybody else will kind of catch up up with us with the mask wearing here. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little insane. It's not that hard to do. It's a little it's inconsistent. Yeah, it is. It's kind of sick. Well, we were talking about it. The uh, Amer, I think America's strength and weakness is it has a personality that says you can't tell me what to do. Right. And that leads to innovation and exploration and advancement. And it also leads to just Idiot stupidity. For, yeah. 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 Because somebody told me to wear a mask. I'm not gonna. Right. Yeah. It's a little insane. But it was good. Um, yeah. I ran into a lot of old friends. Uh, Chris Cittarella, who's been on the podcast, described the show now as John explains things to Stephen. <laughs> Yeah, there's been a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> He's That's like what the show's always been. It's just uh there's more of it now maybe. Yeah. Well, he uh he always comments. He's been he was on the show about 2 years ago. And uh he he always comments and he's just like, "Yeah, Stephen, he doesn't do any research, does he?" No, I don't. I don't do any research. <laughs> it was one thing when you owned a store and you had a level of expertise. Yeah, that's gone now. It's gone now. Yeah. So, um but yeah, it was good, and we took uh, Joe Franzman and I, who uh, as 
is the world famous toy collector who will not appear on this podcast. Uh, we drove out to Long Island and we hit up all the little local stores. We went to a mock time, which is one of the biggest stores out there. One of the biggest websites. Um, they, and we hit like a couple of new comic stores that we didn't really know about. We kind of avoided the targets and the Walmarts. Right. Um, I mean, there hasn't been mass market stuff anyway. So we just kind of looked for these little comic shops and they were, you know, the guy owning it was wearing a mask and there was maybe one other person in there and everyone was wearing masks and, um, and it was like the community still in swing, you know, like, uh, we went into this comic store, um, that I hadn't been to before and they had some Doctor Who figures and I asked Joe if he was still watching it. He's like, nah, I haven't watched it since the new doctor started. And then the owners just started talking to us and I'm like, oh yeah, this is what comic stores were, are supposed to be like. It's what we used to do. Yeah. That's kind of what the... The community's still there, so it's it's um, very reassuring, and it's uh, very very it's a very positive thing to see, and it was fun. So I ended up buying from some things I didn't really need, but I was like, let me buy something. So I bought like the Joker 80th celebration and the Robin 80th celebration, and a reprint of the first Green Goblin and a Willem Dafoe Norman Osborn figure from the first Spider Man movie, which still talks. Oh, it's like a battery powered guy. Yeah, yeah, he comes with a chair that the like, Green Goblin's mask is sitting on, and you press the cushion. Oh, it's like a Willem Dafoe action figure. It's a Willem Dafoe action figure. It's from the oh, Sam Raimi movie. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm going to get it. Hang on. You talk. I thought, I thought you were talking about, like, the Green Goblin in, like, the Power Ranger suit, and I'm like, you have that terrible figure. <laughs> why, would you, why would you get it again? Now, I had it when the movie came out, and I don't know – Renee was like, didn't you already have that? I'm like, yeah, I don't know where it went. But this toy is now, it's uh, 18 years old. The Sam Raimi movie was 18 years ago. A toy can vote. Yeah, uh, but it does this. Which, of co- hang on, which of course it's not doing now. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, to- I totally overpaid for it and I didn't care. Yeah. Uh, the bat it's it's amazing batteries. I bought um I uh I bought the Star Trek transporter figures who are, they're like half translucent cuz they're like beaming out. Yeah. But I bought a set on eBay and they were all in the original boxes and they had bases, they had transporter bases that you would light up and make the sounds. Two of them worked, two of them didn't. Yeah. It's so and weird. It's like, it's like in the package originally. In the package. They were all yeah. in the package. They had like the try me cut out. Yeah. So you could work the battery. The Norman Osborne was just in totally in the package. That's cool. But um, yeah, it was a good, it was a good weekend. And uh, as much as uh, we took precautions and everybody um, tried to do social distancing and wear masks, it was really good to go see my friends who I haven't seen and, a lot of them I haven't seen since last year, but I right. certainly haven't seen anybody in the last three months. Yeah, and especially, yeah, just to think it's like, it's like weird to even hear and talk about like, oh, you went, you went somewhere on a plane. <laughs> like, yeah. It's unusual to hear a person say that describing like, oh, yeah, I went and did this thing. You know, normally everyone's weekend now is just like, what did you watch on TV? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So if I get COVID, the shows will be short for a while. Yeah, they certainly will be. Your diminished lung capacity. Yeah, no, uh, I have a good friend of mine who uh, who we both know who had it, and she has a hard time wearing a mask. Like, we were walking down the street, and she's just like, I feel like I'm breathing through a straw because my lungs 
are, are such diminished capacity to begin with. Wow. That then putting the mask on. And honestly, like the chances of her getting it again are really, really low. But for the sake of everyone else, she's not going to walk around with no mask on. Cause, right. Uh, she maybe had a, could get it again and yeah. chance, uh, you know, give it to somebody else without, you know, her getting herself sick. You also, I, I, I also experienced these snap judgments of not wearing a mask. Oh, yeah. Like one guy walking down the street with no mask. You're like, look at that asshole. Right. I talked to my dad and he goes to Menards still to get stuff for the car or the house or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, he's like, you wouldn't believe all these assholes walking around Menards. You know, the guy at the uh, entrance, make sure you have a mask when you're walking in. And he's like, as soon as people get past that guy at the entrance, they drop their mask. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you, dad. People are, people are morons. Yeah, it makes you realize that uh, it's one of the reasons we don't have superheroes in real life. Right. Because, you know, you get into a fight with six or seven guys wearing a mask over your mouth. Right. <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man needs su- spider strength because he has diminished lung capacity. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, but this week, um, there were, this week we actually had two people pass away. Um, Joe Sinnott, who was in his 90s. Yeah, who uh, was the anchor of Fantastic Four for most of the Kirby run until uh, John Byrne started inking himself in the 80s. Like, yeah. he was the look of the Fantastic Four for decades, uh, passed away. And um, Graham Nolan, who's been on the show, who's one of the creators of Bane, posted on his social network feed, hey, who from the Marvel Age of Comics is still alive? Yeah. And it was like John Romita and Larry Lieber. Wow. Like everybody else, like people were like Roy Thomas. And he was like, nope, he's second wave. Right. Yeah. It's uh, kind of crazy to think like we're so far removed from that decade, you know, specifically, you know, the sixties. Yeah. That it's like a lot of these guys weren't even, I mean, Jack Kirby died in like what the 94 early nineties. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, some of these guys weren't exactly spring chickens to begin with, but it's like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Most of these guys were middle-aged in the sixties. Right, because I mean, we start. We, I mean, we've been losing a lot of like um, the you know uh, Len Wein, yep, Neil generation. Yes, the next the seventies generation. Right. Yeah, and and those guys were the young kids at that point. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, but Sinnott, um, Sinnott was one of the most underrated inkers. I love Sinnott over Kirby. I think it's one of the reasons Fantastic Four is my favorite work by Kirby. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that's kind of like, I mean, again, I might, I'm not an expert or anything, but it's like Joe Sinnott always, to me, seemed like he was the quintessential, like, Kirby inker. It's like, you know, a lot of people, I know have varying opinions and such, but it's like, he always seemed like the guy where it's just like, when you're thinking of classic Kirby, it's like, it was probably inked by Joe Sinnott. Yeah. And, but Joe Sinnott was one of those polished guys where he would come in and, and make the art, like, really seamless and pretty. And I think that's, that's the one thing Kirby lacked. And a lot of the Kirby diehards don't like him because he's heavy handed. They yeah. like some, somebody like, like your Kirby. Yeah. They like, or like Mike Royer, Mike Royer inked all the DC fourth world stuff. And he just did Kirby's pencils, exactly whether they were what Kirby put down on paper, but Sinnott had the, gave it this clean polished look. He, he's more of like a John Bashema, John Romita. And he was originally a penciler, but he could, do work fast. So Stan would give him inking jobs when something would fall behind. Um, but he, like you read fantastic four and the women are pretty and that doesn't happen with Kirby Kirby. on his own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Sue storm and crystal, they look good. 
Right. But he, but, but he didn't diminish Kirby's power at all. Like he couldn't, I don't think anybody could water down Kirby. Cause then the next decade, I mean, you had people as varied as George Perez and Bill Sienkiewicz and um, Rich Buckler and then John Byrne coming on the book. And it all looked like the book because Sinnott had such a strong visual style. Yeah, it's kind of they kept him on for so long. I mean, it's like, you know, to keep a level consistent look, you think that's got kind of a stroke of genius or like a good idea is like, we'll keep the inker around and yeah. just have him ink all these other different pencilers that come after Kirby. And honestly, that's how it was until the 90s. Once a character had a set look, you were supposed to draw it that way. And that was one of the things uh, McFarlane talked about taking over Spider-Man. He's like, he's like, John Romita drew a great Spider-Man in the 60s. Why are we drawing it now in the 80s? Right. It's the first guy to be like, I'm going to redesign Spider-Man. Yeah, and, and there's some logic to that. But, you know, he did, you know, all his faults as a human being aside. Yeah, right. Like, uh, he did kind of set the precedent for like the modern comic book where it's just like every new artist and essentially every creative team now comes in and kind of redefines uh, how they want the character to look. Yeah, it's uh, it it's kind of de rigueur. Even if it's not a reboot, it's like not only not only are people's styles completely taking over the book, where one guy's doing manga and one guy's doing photorealistic stuff, and one guy's doing like silver agey stuff in the same line, but a lot of them they they'll just outright redesign the costumes every time. Right. They'll be like, ah, I think the X Men should be all red, and so they are. I mean, but back then that didn't happen. So having seen it continue to draw the fantastic four in the blue and black costumes was a sense of continuity. Uh, I saw Joe at once at a panel in New York comic-con and it was a Kirby panel and it was him and Mike Royer. And I think Len Wein was um, the moderator it was a really good panel. Uh, and I missed a lot of it cause Ben was a baby and he was crawling around the panel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Steve Rude saw him and fell in love with him. And when we went later that was the year we took a onesie and had everybody uh, draw on it. Um, and kind of like Stu's Captain America shield. So uh, Mike Mignolo drew a Hellboy, and um, But when Steve Rude saw us, he nudged the person next to him and said, hey, there's that baby I was telling you about. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, we, so Steve Rude drew on it, but it was at that panel. And one of the things that amazed me uh, was a question I was going to ask, and since somebody else asked, I think Mark Evanier, uh was moderating that panel uh maybe not len ween but he said like how closely did you work with jack kirby because they had this symbiosis that kirby never had with anybody else and uh since said i never met jack kirby wow. while he was working on the book i think he met him later at a convention he was right. like he's like stan just gave me his pencils yeah all this stuff came through the mail yeah it all came through the mail and but they didn't uh the inker was not involved in story breakdowns that's wild. So and like, not even have like a conversation over the telephone. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, that's just Stan and Jack would. Joe would just get it. Would get pages like FedEx. Well, there wasn't even FedEx. It was just like probably a courier. It was probably like a fourteen-year-old kid, right? Like with a brown Manila envelope. Here you are, Mister Senate. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd like, and then it's it's Galactus attacking the Earth for the first time. And he's like, all right, it'll make the Sue Stone prettier. <laughs> But he was a very like kind, affable guy, um, and I love. I just loved loved his work, and I think, as I was saying, it's one of the reasons I love Kirby. And it took me a long time to get into Kirby, but 
um, I'm not that into Thor. And one of the thing is, uh, you know, there's Frank Giacoya on it and, um, and others, uh, there's an anchor everybody hates and I'm blanking on him. Yeah, I am very familiar. I wish I knew the guy's name. I, I got to look it up because, um, he, he was notorious for, uh, erasing things. Dick Gators, Al Hartley, Don Heck, George Russo, Paul Reinman, Chick Stone, Vince Coletta, Frank. Vince Coletta. Vince Coletta. Thank you. Chick Stone, I really like. Chick Stone didn't stay on anything too long. Yeah. Chick Stone had a heavy, heavy black line, and the characters really pop. He did a run on Fantastic Four with Kirby before Senate that are the best-looking issues. And then he did a bunch of X-Men. And he did a bunch of Captain Americas, all Kirby stuff. Yeah. Chick Stone, I like. Vince Coletta was... Stan would hire him because he was the fastest inker. So and he was doing like a lot of like late assignments. He was getting a lot of late assignments and he always turned it in on time, which is why Stan would always hire him. But Coletta, uh, one of the reasons he was so fast is something wasn't important to the panel. He just erased the pencils. That's fucked up. So, I mean, at the time, it, they're like... It, no, it wasn't like this was at the time, but it's like if you told me... If you told any comic book fan today that somebody was erasing Jack Kirby pencils, they'd string them up. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, imagine if you had an inker that was erasing your pencils. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be furious. And if, and if they just said, I didn't have time to draw the building in the back, so I just erased it and we'll make it red. It's like, okay, that's why you're fast because you're... you're yeah, that's why he was fast. An asshole. But Senate was the opposite. Senate was just beautiful. And he was fast because... Uh, the thing about Kirby was very fast, and Kirby was doing at least three books a month. Sometimes it was seven. Don't understand the the workload of that man is just like I. It doesn't physically make sense to me the amount of the volume of artwork that that guy could produce. Yeah, well, he was he was in the business for thirty years. He yeah. didn't do any design work. He designed <laughs> everything on the paper That's on the page <laughs> because of thirty years of design. But he yeah. also sat at that table for twelve to fourteen hours a day. Right. Uh, every day. It wasn't yeah. like this guy lived and breathed comic books. Yeah. Yeah. And they came from that generation where they were like happy to be out of the tenements in Brooklyn yeah. and glad the Nazis didn't kill them. Right. Uh, so they were, they were just happy to just keep working and working and working. Um, and Sinnott was one of those guys. Um, Sinnott did a lot of, um, well, he did a lot of Thor with Ron friends too. And yeah, everything. Um, I haven't seen a lot of this stuff collected. It is, but, you know, in a format that I'm looking to get is the... Uh, Epic collections? Yeah, it's like I've seen a lot of that kind of stuff with Thor, and it's the same thing where it's like there's a lot of very much like Fantastic Four is that after Kirby left Thor, there was, all right, this is how you're supposed to do Thor, you know, and then right. all the things that came afterward were kind of, you know, had this, you know, very Kirby-like yeah. uh, until, attempts. Until Simonson. Right. And you well, know, yeah, that's you know, two decades later, you know, right. And most of the books were like that. And in the seventies, most of the books were just trying to keep what the sixties had going. Like, ev- like we said, everyone drew Spider Man like John Romita. Everyone drew Thor like Kirby. Um, everyone drew Daredevil like Gene Colan. Right. Well, Frank Miller. And actually, in the beginning, Frank Miller's kind of doing Gene Colan. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like to start, you know, and they kind of find their legs or yeah. uh, the editors are paying less and less attention to them. Yeah, and it's in the 80s, like Jim Shooter kind of pushed that, like after Secret Wars, I think after um, Spider-Man's black costume took off and they reversed the colors of the Fantastic Four when Byrne made them black and white. 
then like they started to redesign everybody. Like Thor got that armor and the X-Men, like Storm got punky and uh, they changed Wolverine from yellow to brown and they just started tweaking everybody's designs. And that's kind of where the first real break from the Silver Age. Right. Yeah. Uh, It kind of becomes now the norm. Yeah. You know, instead of, there's not really a consistent look other than Spider-Man can't deviate too far from the norm before he's back, you know. Right. Well, and now it's like, well, Spider-Man's Dr. Octopus, and that means he's got three costume changes. Right. Uh, It just didn't happen back then. But with guys like Senate, they were like, all right, that's the continuity. And people that, and kids that honestly was kids then. If they didn't know any better, they could still maybe think that Jack Kirby was drawing it. Yeah, I think it's like a, a certain type of person that checks the credits in comics, and then there's the people that are just happy to just keep mindlessly reading them over and over and uh, not paying you know too much attention. But I think the older you get, the more curious you get about like, yeah, where's this stuff coming from? You know, who is yeah. this? And it's just like when you get into movies or television shows, you start recognizing actors and you know, directors maybe to some extent. And, uh, you know, so you start to kind of get your favorites based on who's making it versus just following this character all the time. Yeah. Um, I agree. And the, the deeper you get, the more you care about the people behind the scenes. And back then up until the eighties and nineties, I mean, it was really just kids cared about the character and they read it and they left. Yeah. Yeah. It's as I got older, I find myself watching like more and more of the behind the scenes stuff versus the, the actual stuff itself. You know, it's like, there's a, uh, YouTube I just saw had a it's Batman the animated series it's a documentary about oh yeah I just saw that too yeah it's pretty cool and it's called like Heart of Batman I think so it might be named after one of the episodes yeah well Heart of Ice is the first Mr. Freeze but what I believe what it was was it was the exclusive documentary on the remastered Blu-ray set Okay. And I bought they them. They re-released it on YouTube. Yeah, I bought it digital, but Warner's put it out. I mean, that can right. be, an, that's kind of an early, early greatest thing, but I stumbled across it too. And it was, it's a 90 minute documentary on the making of Batman, the animated and series. They interview everybody in this. Yes. It's pretty cool to see. And it's that same idea of, it's like, you know, this shows are really, um, you know, art, artistic or whatever, you know, it's very aesthetically pleasing. It's this great show, but it's like, I'm, I'm now more interested in, watching a behind the scenes of how it was made or interviews with the people, what their intent was and what they were inspired by and all that stuff versus, you know, just endlessly watching that show over and over. Yeah. And that was really interesting because I got the impression watching that documentary as good as it was like, no, nobody, nobody knew it was going to last the way it would, or nobody knew it was going to be as big as it was, but nobody was expecting it to be all that good. I mean, I think what, what, I always got the impression what Warner's expected was them to like just do a pretty cheap, fast Tim Burton version of Batman. You know, something like the real Ghostbusters or Beetlejuice. Right. Where I was like, yeah, that show's pretty good. But, you know, it's like it rides the coattails of the movie until that, that wears out. And I think one of the geniuses of Bruce Tim is like, no, just doing straight up Batman. It's like everything that's good from the comic and everything that's good from the other animated versions and the Tim Burton movies. That um and you know they originally uh they had to redesign Catwoman and Penguin because he drew the classic versions, right? And, and they were like, "Well, Batman Returns is coming out right before this mo- this animated series, so like make the ping make the Penguin Danny DeVito, right? Yeah, so it might be an early greatest thing in the world, but it sounds like we're both on the same page. It's uh, 
it's pretty great. It was a nice uh, thing to stumble across on the on YouTube. Uh, and I don't know how long they keep this up here or whatever, but I guess I don't know. Well, Warner's put it up themselves, so it's not like somebody ripped it off the Blu-ray, right. put it up. And I believe they put it up for quarantine. There's a lot of there's a lot of great content coming out just because companies know people are home. Right. It's one of the things my buddy was telling me. We were talking about you know, the, we're, we're entering in Chicago phase four or five or whatever it is where it's, you know, bars and restaurants are opening, people can go out. Right. And we were talking about movie theaters and, you know, it's like, there's nothing in movie theaters right now. It's like, they have no new movies out. And he was saying, it's like, they actually should have released movies like Black Widow uh, streaming them and made, they would have definitely made their money out of just like a solid area of like, hey, we're all in this kind of like shitty uh, you know, quarantine together. Everyone's hurting from this. The least they could have done is release it digitally. Make us pay for it, sure. Straight well, they're doing that. They're just not, they're just saving their A movies. I mean, you're seeing right. things like the SpongeBob movie is coming out streaming and the Scooby-Doo movie just came out streaming. And uh, I think the Invisible Woman, it was the Invisible Man movie with... Um, Elizabeth Moss came out streaming, but something like Black Widow, they're like, this might make a billion dollars and we're, we're not going to make a billion dollars streaming. So I think the B films are coming out that way. But what's, right. what I'm wondering about is AMC just keeps putting out press releases like, hey, we're going to open again and uh, you have to wear masks in the theater or you have to sit uh, seat apart. But no, oh, no, no, you don't have to do that. Um, so, but when they open, we'll do this. And the, the one thing they never answer is, what the fuck are you going to show? Right. <laughs> there's no, nothing. Nobody's there's nothing. made a movie. Right. Are you going to show Attack of the Clones? <laughs> right. <laughs> Big back in the vault. And yeah. Honestly, I think maybe they should be thinking about just re-releasing movies. You know, the big classics, like the Music Box in Chicago does this, where they always yeah. are showing like... Indiana well, Music Box, and- music box is, is starting to have movies outside. They're starting right. to project them on the back. And drive-ins are coming back. Yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, yeah, but... Uh, people can watch a movie and not get out of their car. They've been doing stand, uh, in Astoria where I just was in Long Island City. Michael Che was doing um, stand-up show, drive-in stand-up shows. That's crazy. And in fact, I was walking around Long Island City Friday night and it was written on chalk, free comedy with an arrow. And it led up to this parking lot. And what people would fill in the parking lot. And Michael Che sat on the back of a flatbed truck with a PA system. Yeah. And just did stand up or like that, um, the Dave Chappelle YouTube, where it's like he's in a pavilion of a park in like Ohio where he lives. Right. And people are sitting way, way far apart. You know, um, there's ways to do it. And uh, it wasn't until I like got out again because I've been sitting, I've been sitting in my house in the Chicago suburbs forever. So I'm just streaming and streaming and streaming. And uh, the comics I'm reading are all six months old. I you know, like I said, I just finished Absolute Carnage, um, which <laughs> I had already read. Despite I read this watch or the read Absolute Carnage stage of quarantine. Yes, um, I read the Spider-Man tie-ins when they came out, and I didn't know what they meant. Yeah, I uh, have no interest in that at all. It was pretty good. It um, well, Dan Romero, who's a friend of ours, loves this Venom run that Johnny Cates, Johnny Cates, and Ryan Stegman are doing, and it's clearly an event that's rolling out of that series. Right, pulling Spider-Man into it. More. Yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of unusual to have like the secondary Spider-Man book running at the same time. That's just as influential as the, um, you know, the the main Spider-Man story. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of like if Wolverine 
was leading an X-Men event, not X-Men. Right. It's, it's like a secondary X-Men book. It's kind of like when Grant Morrison was on Batman and Robin and was just like totally steering the direction of the Bat books away from whatever they were doing in Detective or you yep. know, the movie Batman at the time. That run is so crazy because he said every time he, every time he wanted to quit, he got an idea and then he would start another title. Jesus. It's like, I don't know why that wasn't, because he didn't really miss any issues. I don't know why that wasn't four or five years of Batman, but it was like, now it's Batman and Robin and somebody else can do Batman. Now it's yeah. Batman Incorporated. Somebody else can do a Batman and Robin while somebody else is doing Batman. And, and DC was just it. like, yes, another monthly. Well, I think they're happy to relaunch any book with a new number one yeah. you know, that's helmed by Grant Morrison. Did, did they, uh, now, when they collected all that run, you've read it all kind of in one-ish go. Yeah, I read them, I read them uh, as issues, and then they came out as three absolutes, one for each series, and now they're coming out as two omnibuses. Does it, uh, does it make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, and it, it fits together. In fact, there's a lot of like, plot threads he drops in Batman that he picks up in Batman Incorporated, but it's, like, it's kind of like All-Star Superman. The weight between the issues is so long that you forget those parts are important. Right. I know you. I know you love All Star Superman. I thought it was so much better as an absolute, and I bought every oh, issue. Yeah, I mean, All Star Superman was it was uh, it was painful waiting for that book to come out with new issues. But I think if you sit down and read that twelve issue arc, that's like a perfect Superman story. Yeah, when I got the absolute, I read it. it I went to bed and read it for four hours. I just yeah. read the book from cover to cover, couldn't put it down. Yeah. And it, when I was uh, buying it as issues, it would be like once every three months or so that it would come out. And I'd like pick it up and I'd be like, well, that was really weird. Yeah. It's like, uh, I, uh, I remember every issue being basically super confused because they're all pretty kind of self-contained, but then they fit in this larger narrative. And I, 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 I don't mind waiting for it when it's a guy like Frank Quiley. I was listening to um, John Suntress just in an interview with um, Tom King and they're talking about the Bat and the Cat series that's coming out. Yeah, which keep, it keeps getting delayed. Keeps getting delayed, which I'm fine with, because if that means Clayman is still working and he can build up issues so that when you know it gets released, there's less of a gap between the issues. I think or there's a fill-in artist. Right, and that's kind of like the worst, uh, the worst uh, case scenario. Yeah, that's an interesting... It's an interesting topic because I feel like it's kind of changed its mission statement since it's been going on. It was originally... They pulled Tom King off Batman because the sales were dropping. And then the fan outcry said, oh, no, he's, he had a 100-issue run. And he said, okay, well, we'll just do it as a limited series. And it seemed like it, the monthly was just going to get – well, it was the twice monthly. So it looked like it was just going to get punted over and into a monthly to kind of wrap it up for the hardcore fans. Kind of how in the New 52, after a while, they brought Batman Incorporated back because Grant Morrison hadn't finished. Like he was getting to the end of his run when New 52 happened and they just canceled Batman Incorporated. Yeah, and then they just started over with another number one, which I'm sure they loved. Yep, there's two volumes of Batman Incorporated. So that sounded like what Bat and the Cat was going to be. But it seems like as this goes on and obviously uh, COVID and quarantine and uh, DC Dumping Diamond has pushed a lot of new titles back and back and back. It seems like this is being more kind of lined up like Last Night on Earth, like a prestige format. Yeah, I think they do kind of want to have it be more of its own. I mean, I think it's going to end up being a lot like his Mr. Miracle and uh, right. his Adam Strange, which has been pretty wild so far. Is that I haven't read Adam Strange yet. It's good. It's good. Yeah, it's really cool because um, the 
they've got Mitch Gerards and uh, Doc Shanner are both doing the art. So oh, then nice. there's, you know, it's a clear dilation, like what, you know, time frame we're in. And uh, it works like really, really well. These guys are like made for each other. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's the same kind of, you don't really know where it's going from issue to issue, uh, character introspective on, you know, this obscure DC character that not a lot of modern readers either know or uh, are big fans of, you know, I don't know how many people are like, oh, I'm a huge Adam Strange fan. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, you know, he's basically a Flash Gordon ripoff. And, exactly. Uh, and he, right. there's just such weird rules with the Zeta Beam takes him to Ran for like 36 hours, but he has a wife there. There's yeah. like, it's a lot of convoluted. So is it, is it a 12-issue series like Mr. Miracle or yeah, Vision? Lead, or I think so, is that it's going to be kind of fit in that vein. And much like, I think, The Bat and the Cat, it's going to be this like one kind of, self-contained story that exists outside the continuity until the continuity passes it then it becomes continuity you know killing joke was like this where it was like killing joke takes place out of continuity but then what happens in it is so important to continuity it's kind of like once it's out and released it essentially counts yeah well it starts kind of taking over dark knight was the same way and that was john ostringer's idea in um i think it was in justice league task force or something where he just was like i'm gonna put barbara in the wheelchair and that she became oracle which i still think i love gail simone's run on batgirl um but i still think uh barbara gordon as oracle was the strongest version of that character yeah i think it's um i i think it's something where it's important because it's you know anytime they take a character and they they make a change like a significant change popular or unpopular i think it's kind of like the characters need to evolve so yeah. it's the same thing when they give you know reed and sue in the fantastic four they got a kid they get that kid you know fairly late in stan and jack's run but mm. that was 50 years ago <laughs> you know what i mean right. so it's like they they gave them the kid that was a mainstay it changed how they were doing the book uh, you know, they take Sue off the team, they swap in Crystal. But the idea that these characters are supposed to grow and evolve, it's like, yeah, it's a really tragic thing that happens to Barbara Gordon, but it's, she arguably does more good as Oracle in that world. Yeah, and, and she's more of, a, more of a standout character. She's not, she's not a copy of any other type of trope. Right, she's her own character. Yeah, yeah and I, I do think we kind of lost something. I, I think I just love 90s DC. I just, like, I feel like Wally West is Flash and Kyle Rayner and Oracle and Nightwing getting his own series and Tim Drake being Robin. I'm right. just kind of into all that stuff. I just picked up the, as I said, the Robin 80th anniversary while I was out and I read it on the plane coming back. And it's just like Action Comics or Batman. I think DC is just going to do, do these $10 books whenever they feel like it. Like there'll be a Wonder Woman one. There'll be an Aquaman one. There'll be, there was a Green Lantern one. I didn't pick it up, but it was interesting because it was It was all different Robin stories of different eras and it was all different Robin. So there was like a Dick Grayson Robin story. And then there was a Dick Grayson Nightwing story. And then there was a Dick Grayson, like, Grayson spy story and then there was a Tim Drake story and then there was a Jason story and then there was a Damien story and it's there was a spoiler story and just kind of and they were jumping eras and it's like they're still trying to construct this timeline where Batman's had six different people be Robin right in the span of five years like Robin's five the years, yeah he's got a Robin every nine months yeah like Robin's the menudo of superheroes right I yeah I do miss it I uh you know we I started reading comics in the 90s 
and I was more of a DC fan than a Marvel fan, they had that legacy that this is something yeah. that always frustrated me when they did the new 52 and then rebirth and whatever they're in now is we've lost a sense of like legacy characters where it was like, there was a golden age of silver age and a modern age of flash yeah. uh, green lantern. You know, it's like you had the justice society, you had justice league, then you had the newest version of the justice. League. It's like, there was a steady progression, you know, there was mm. Robin, the Nightwing, and Nightwing led the Justice League at one point. It's like, they were doing cool stuff that didn't, um, you know, kind of all get what gets wiped out when they decide to just, you know, <laughs> throw their continuity in the toilet. Right, yeah, and reboot everything. Well, for the longest time with the New 52, there was like, there were things they couldn't decide. They were like, at one point they said Tim Drake was never Robin. Right. And he, then he was, and then he was red Robin all the time. And then, and then in this 80th anniversary issue, he said, uh, you know, I added the name red Robin once Damien became Robin. And I'm like, Oh, that's back in continuity. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, any, it's like their continuity is just kind of like uh, whatever they need to do to get from month to month. You know, it's like, they don't really ever take it too seriously. Yeah. Well, speaking of Batman, we suffered another loss this week. Um, a more controversial figure in the world of comics, but Joel Schumacher passed away. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I don't really know. And I know he's obviously made many, many more movies, but it's like, I only really know him for the two Batman movies. He did. Right. And that's kind of a shame. He was, he was a very popular director in the eighties and nineties. And he was big enough that they gave him Batman and that they thought he would be a good idea to take it over from Tim Burton. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. If you think about it, it's like the studio had, a, I mean, an unbelievable hit with you know, Batman 89. And then Batman Returns probably made a lot of money, but also probably made a lot of people wondering if Tim Burton was okay. Yeah. And then, you know, they're like, okay, we're, we're going to part ways with him. We still want to make another one of these things because of how much money they make. And it's just like Joel Schumacher is the guy they kind of hemmed the to take that over. Yeah, he was more of a, a straight up Hollywood guy. But he's made um he's made some big movies before and after. He made the, the Phantom of the Opera. Uh he made that movie Phone Booth. He made uh A Time to Kill, a John which was a John Grisham one. He made The Client, which was another John Grisham. Falling Down. Did you ever see Falling Down? No. It's like Michael Douglas having a slow breakdown in like 90s LA and like starts wandering around with a gun. <laughs> like attacking racists and gangbangers. He made Flatliners was a very big movie. Um, he wrote Car Wash, <laughs> which was like, which was like, uh, it was like a black exploitation movie, but it was a bigger black exploitation movie because it had like Richard Pryor and George Carlin. Yeah. Oh, uh, he made The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys is oh like yeah, that's huge. Like, yeah, called that's lasted for a long time. Although, you know, the oiled muscle man playing saxophone in it is now the one defining image. Right. Yeah, it's like a, time hasn't been great to it. Yeah, St. Elmo's Fire was another big one that was kind of like the first of those Brat Pack movies that advanced their ages. You were, um, obviously you're older than I am. When How old were you when Batman Forever comes out? I was graduating college. So and I, rem yeah, I remember seeing it like the week before finals. And I was like... Yeah. And I was like, oh, that was okay. Right. And I didn't, I didn't see problems in Batman Forever until Batman and Robin came out. Because I was like, all the problems of Batman Forever were just magnified Yeah. in Batman and Robin. And I think Schumacher wasn't a bad director. He was a bad choice. Yeah, well, and I do wonder how much of like, you know, because you know, I've looked at 
the um you know material that's come out of like the behind the scenes of like the batman 89 and some of the batman returns yeah. but i i never hear or see anything about the other two movies there's really they, good documentaries on the dvds yeah that when Maybe they that's because i never purchased those <laughs> yeah they did the, they did a four pack batman set around the time batman begins was in theater so at that yeah. time it was the four movies and they all have really good documentaries on them. The 89 one is incredible where like Jack Nicholson is on the DVD. It's awesome. Yeah. I think yeah. you actually, you got rid of your DVD and gave it to me. I upgraded so, to the Blu-ray, I think. So you, you upgraded. Might have DVD, so I yeah. think I, that's how I had seen it. And I mean, it's and really all on, incredible. They're all on the iTunes versions. I have them all in the cloud now. But right. they do have like Batman Forever and Batman and Robin go in depth into it. And like Joe yeah. Schumacher apologizes on Batman Rami. He's like, well, if you didn't like it, I guess that's my fault. Yeah. Well, it's nice of him to take the the blame or whatever, but I do kind of wonder is like how many studio people were weighing in trying to sell oh, a lot. figures or toys or whatever. That, well, it was a lot of it. And I think that was one of the problems they had with Tim Burton was like, I feel like every time they – they had a meeting with Tim Burton. They're like, so how are you going to do, I'm sure the toy companies and McDonald's are in the room and they're like, so how are you going to do the penguin? Um, you know, dark and weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, how are you going to do uh Catwoman? You know, dark and weird. <laughs> it's like, how are you going to do Alfred, Tim? Yeah. Dark and weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and I think like he was, I love Tim Burton and I always find him entertaining. And, um, he's had a slow down for me more than like, he had a, a no, but no director I could think of has had as great an opening run as he did. Like his first seven movies are all fantastic. You know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the two Batman movies, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas is in there. Like up into up until Mars Attacks, his run is phenomenal. What's and wrong I, with Mars Attacks? <laughs> I like Mars Attacks. It's cr- it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. There's no story. But you know what? I watched Batman '89 not too long ago. It also has no story. There's a good half an hour. There's a full half an hour of Joker just running around doing things. Yeah. And like Bruce Wayne in Wayne Manor, just kind of looking out a window, just waiting. <laughs> yeah, and and like, and I think because, maybe because Joker's crazy. Like Joker's not even doing consistent things. Like. He's taking over the mob, and then he's poisoning everybody, and then he's trying to take Vicky Vale, and then he's poisoning everybody again. <laughs> it's like he doesn't really have any agenda at all, right? But uh, but when you know when Batman when Joel Schumacher was doing Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, he was just saying yes a lot more. Yeah, maybe you know, yeah, like, maybe it's like if, whether he wasn't fighting with the studios or just kind of like, all right, you want me to add a little. Ice Skate Batman, here's Ice Skate Batman. Here's, yeah. you know, all this, um, these vehicles and this ridiculous, you know, over-the-top stuff. Yeah, and he, he turned it back into Adam West by the that fourth movie. Yeah, it wasn't something I kind of realized until, you know, I don't know, a couple of years ago. It was like, he was just really doing the Adam West show with the, with the Hollywood budget. That's it. That's all that fourth right. movie is. You know, it's like, the third movie is like halfway between Tim Burton and, uh, you know, the what Batman and Robin became, but right. Uh, and other than that, then they, they have the, the identical plot and pacing. <laughs> it's like, yeah. just remade the same exact movie. It's like, uh, it's just like every scene's the identical one. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, pretty much, but just much worse. <laughs> right. right. Like, Everything about it is much worse. Yeah. Cause like, uh, uh, Jim Carrey's, I think Jim Carrey's really good in Batman forever. And Val Kilmer is interesting. Yeah, I don't um, think either one of them is bad. I think uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Jones is not great. 
chewing on the scenery. Like he's just, he's just jumping around and yelling. And I was like, Two-Face is not the Joker. Right. And it, there were a lot of stories that he hated Jim Carrey. And yeah, I've heard a lot of that. That he didn't want to be, he didn't want the scene to be stolen from him. So he just started ramping himself up. Yeah. But like Two-Face is supposed to be like bipolar, but he's not playing the quiet part at all. Yeah. It's weird. It's, it's, it, you know, it's a kid. You don't really notice or maybe pay attention. I, right. you know, to me, they were both, yep. These are just what Batman villains are like. And then you get older and you're kind of like, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones was just playing the Joker. You just kind of wonder is like, this guy didn't have like any kind of grasp on, <laughs> on the character at all. Yeah. I was just listening to uh, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. And uh, they had the director of Men in Black, um, which was, uh, man, I'm blanking. It's Barry Sonnefeld. They had Barry Sonnefeld on talking about his whole career. And he's like, what stories can you tell us about Men in Black? He's like, well, Rip Torn and Tommy Lee Jones were both from Texas and they hated each other. And oh, I'm like, wow. there's, a, there's a lot of Tommy Lee Jones hates people stories. Yeah. You begin to wonder if maybe he's the problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Rip Torn also had a reputation. Yeah. Rip, there's a story that Rip Torn was auditioning for Easy Rider with Dennis Hopper. So they went out to dinner to talk about it and it ended up with Rip Torn pulling a knife on Dennis Hopper. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. He was mercurial. We just watched, rewatched all of uh, Larry Sanders. Ben had never seen it. Yeah. And Rip Torn's phenomenal in that. Yeah. He's great in everything. Yeah. Thing. And he, uh, he, he was in 30 Rock right at the end of his life. He, yeah. he, he was the executive, right? Yeah. Don Geis. He was Don Geis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And he died during the run, and they, they gave him a funeral. They froze him in carbonite. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That show was perfect. It was great. We're watching that again, too. And that, that, that joke ratio is so incredibly high. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Joel Schumacher, I feel like people are going to remember The Lost Boys. And uh, St. Elmo's Fire, maybe not as much. It was big in the 80s. But The Lost Boys kind of stays around. The Lost Boys was the first vampire thing i'd ever seen that was not like set in transylvania right in the 1800s like that was the first time i'd ever seen a modern vampire because it's it's a good five years before buffy or certainly twilight or what we do in the shadows or um i, I think that's why it had the impact it was like uh maybe near dark is before that but nobody saw that movie yeah it's like i uh we saw it when we were that kids but probably you know pre-teens or just around being teenagers and i you know remember it being cool but then i think i'd seen buffy around the same time yeah so it kind of got lost in the shuffle but um yeah you don't really get one without the other you know what i mean it's like i don't think buffy exists if no without lost boys yeah and there was there's a movie called fright night which i remember it was like a couple years earlier which was a modern vampire but that was the first one that made vampires cool and then it was like i think it was after lost boys everybody wanted to People started to want to be vampires. Yeah. But like then like you they get, glamorized it for the first time. Yeah, you get like Anatomy of a Vampire, the Anne Rice novels after that. And um, as I said, some things we mentioned before, Buffy and uh, Buffy, which is not a good movie, by the way, if you've ever watched it. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, that's about as much Buffy as I've ever seen. Oh. Seen, oh, yeah. We, we watched the movie uh, when we were kids. We were younger than when we saw The Lost Boys, but we watched Buffy and then I, I heard they made a show and I'm like, I'm not going to watch some show based on a movie that sucked. <laughs> yeah. Know? It was also on the WB and it was like, they were doing Dawson's Creek at that time. And it was right. like, and they were pitching it as like a teen soap opera. And I was in my twenties. I'm like, I got no patience for this. And then 
Um, so I didn't discover Joss Whedon until I was around the time that he was doing Serenity and writing X-Men. Right. That I was like, well, I was like, oh, this guy's really good. And then it was like, well, Buffy's his big hit show that ran for seven seasons. Okay, I'll watch that. And we watched the pilot. Uh, it's all on Hulu. And um, there's a lot of like teen soap in there. And Ben was not standing for it. And I'm like, you yeah. like vampires? And he's like, yeah. But, you know, it gets better and better as it goes on. But I, the way I did it was good was I became a Whedon fan, then watched Buffy. Right, yeah, I think maybe that's kind of the way to do it. Yeah. Have you seen Firefly? Uh, yeah, I think I've seen most of it. I don't know that I ever finished it. I, I think Firefly uh, kind of went the way of the same. It's like anything else that gets overhyped, and then you see it, and you're just like, I don't get it. It's like, I mean, yeah. it's like entertaining as a concept. You know, it's like um, the idea of like a Western in space, obviously, I really enjoy because The Mandalorian is a Western in space. Right, but it's a great, um, but it's also a great cast. And then it's, right. and it's Joss Whedon's style, you know, so it's, it's, they talk like the Avengers talk. Right. You know, and that's what, that was my first reaction seeing Avengers was I was like, oh my God, they're taught, they sound like the, like the crew of Firefly. Yeah, I think I, you know, so I wasn't too familiar with him when he went to go do Avengers. The, mm -hmm. I don't know, I think he had done Astonishing X-Men at that point. Yeah, they gave him Avengers. One of the reasons they gave him Avengers was Marvel liked him. Right. When I, uh, when what kind of sold me on him wasn't so much Buffy or that, but they had done these, um, they weren't on omnibus. It was two, two hardcovers for the ultimates. And he had wrote an opening, uh, like of the ultimates. He an introduction. The introduction. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, this guy gets what I thought the Avengers could be or should be. The ultimates is very cinematic. I'm like, this is what this guy's, he's going to make this movie, you yeah. know, and that's essentially what they ended up doing. Yeah. But way funnier. Right, yeah. So, and you know, that's kind of helps sell the absurdity of the materials. It's like you know, you put a little humor in, and then it's it has a broader appeal than Justice League. You know? Yeah. So, I, I mean, you could make the argument that if we didn't have Joel Schumacher, we wouldn't have had the Avengers, uh, which is which is interesting because most people blame Schumacher for killing off the superior genre for a good ten years. Although, you know what, Blade is the next year. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, see, I think it's a misnomer. People always be like, oh, we, you know, we haven't, we, they never stopped making superhero movies. I no, in fact, Men in Black was a comic book movie, and it was out the exact same time as Batman and Robin. Right, and I, I think even if you limited it just to superhero movies, it's like Batman 89 as like a starting point. I know Superman came first, but it took them a long time to make to Batman get, after right. the last Superman movie. But basically from Batman 89 till now, it's like there's kind of always superhero movies in this you know, there's the four Batman movies and then we go right into Blade and then we're right into X-Men and then mm -hmm. Spider-Man. It's like Batman 89 really kind of started a train that hasn't really stopped yet. That's why it's like whole, um, you know, do you ever think they're going to stop making superhero movies? It's like, no, because they haven't in 30 years. Right, <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, and so as, I mean, Batman and Robin is a very bad movie. <laughs> it's Yeah, yeah. Uh, no I, when I saw it, I said, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty um, bad. And it and what's really frustrating about Batman and uh, Robin is that they already uh, had Mr. Freeze figured out in the animated series. They nailed yeah. Mr. Freeze, a character yeah, so they, nobody cared about before that animated series. No, but they kind of lost the thread. Yeah, well, they steal that 
they steal that origin because that's a complete invention by Paul Dini of like the yeah. wife in cryogenics and and the accident and that he's trying to save her. Before that, he's a guy with a cold gun. Right, he's just an asshole. Yeah, but, but they do that. But then it's like it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger and a supermodel. Yeah, like Vendela, and then he's like, "Oh, my wife." Yeah, and so the, but then he's like, in, he's in like a Vegas glitter costume and making ice buns. Yeah, it's I don't bad. know. Like that was also a point where that movie they were clearly just hiring the most famous people they could get. It was like George right. Clooney and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it's like they weren't really considering who the characters were right yeah it was more about who was playing them versus what they were playing yeah everyone remember lost their damn minds when they cast michael keaton and it wasn't until they actually saw he was taking it seriously that they were like oh okay and that brings us to another point another news story which i just i initially just dismissed as a rumor but then variety and the hollywood reporter picked it up and that's kind of my rule for superhero movie rumors yeah, because our our news reporting in the industry is we're uh, we're like thirteen year old boys still. Yes, um, a word of advice to everyone: never pay attention to a headline from WeGotThisCovered dot com. Yeah, they're like Breitbart; they just make shit up. Uh, so that's the first thing when I see a rumor this big, I'm like, "Is this WeGotThisCovered dot com?" Right? Who's, but, who's where'd this come? But from? yeah, once like Hollywood starts reporting it, but apparently Michael Keaton is in talks to come back as Batman in a, in a Flashpoint movie. In this Flash movie that's kind of been in development hell for years. Yeah, I, it's like I want to believe it, and I think it's a great idea. My concern is that, like, it's going to be in a Flash movie that, you know, has been in development hell for, yeah, right. for the last half a dozen by the years. Time it, by the time it's made, will it even be Flashpoint? Right, exactly. It's kind of hard to believe that the movie that we think we're going to get is going to get off the ground, you know? Right, and I, I, cannot think of, I cannot think of a less necessary superhero movie than Flash because we're in season, what, five of his TV show. Yeah, because his show isn't getting canceled. It's not going anywhere. Right, and it's obviously, and it's obviously not, the, not Grant Gustin who's going to play Flash. There's no continuity between them. Well, I guess because that we've already uh, got Ezra, Ezra Miller showed up in yeah. the show. Yes, he did in the um, and the Crisis episode. Right. So I wonder if there might be some continuity. So they the kind movie. of well, they they basically no, that's not a bad idea because they basically said that like when they were jumping from universe to universe, and we talked about those when they were out, they were really fun. Whereas like Robert Wool's in it and Burt Ward is in it, and like um, Brandon Roth comes back as Superman. Yeah, yeah, because he was already playing the Atom. Yeah. On Legends of Tomorrow. And that was, and they did a quick thing where Flash met Flash and it was Justice League Flash and, and TV Flash. Um, so, but I, I, don't, it, I don't know why the casual viewer would want to go to a Flash movie that has nothing to do with the TV show when the TV show is what they know. Um, I'm fine when like Marvel, I, Marvel does it very well where it's like these characters are on TV, these characters are in movies. Um, the choices I think are weird. I don't know why we have a Shang-Chi movie and a Moon Knight TV series. Yeah, I think they, they should both clearly be TV series. Um, the, I think Moon Knight should be the movie. Yeah, I mean, out of the two of them, the, Moon Knight would make more sense. But The I, visuals. I, yeah, the visuals alone, but I do think it's, it's doable as a TV series because it's basically, it's the closest thing Marvel has to a Batman. 
You know, yeah, I just bought. There was a Moon Knight sale on Comixology, and I bought the three epic collections of the eighty of the original eighties run. Yeah. It's like Doug mentioned. There's a lot of Bill Sienkiewicz work, and I'm like, I've known about Moon Knight for I don't know, probably thirty, thirty five years. I still know who the hell he is. He has like three secret identities, and he has the powers of the moon, yeah. and he's like a ninja. Kind of he's like, things. and he's in shadows, but he wears white. There's so much I don't get about this guy. He was in West Coast Avengers for a while, and I was reading it, and I still didn't get him. I think yeah. he's a cool visual. Walgreens is doing a Marvel Legends, but and I'm and I pre-ordered it, but I'm like, yeah. I, I'm like, let me sit down with these epic collections and read them, and then of course the first one, he's one of those characters like Blade that appeared in a bunch of books, so it's like he's like. He's in Werewolf by Night, and then Marvel Premiere, and then The Defenders, and then Hulk Magazine. And I'm like, oh, I don't know that I can do this. Yeah, he's definitely one of those guys that uh, didn't have a home for a while, and it, it definitely hurt the character. I, I think yeah. once you kind of get to, and again, I haven't read a lot of it, but the Bill Sienkiewicz stuff where they kind of start ironing out some of the stuff and laying some groundwork, okay, for like, who is this guy supposed to be? That's when it starts to come together. Yeah, and, and that's what I want to read. Um, Vengeance of Moon Knight miniseries a couple years ago. Was that the David Finch? No, I uh, he might have been doing the covers, but uh, Jerome Pena was actually doing the artwork. It was oh, okay. The first Marvel stuff I saw him do before uh, he got snatched up to work on Avengers, and then um, you know started doing indie stuff afterwards. But it was a really really cool book. The for the you know the twelve issues or whatever of it that it ran before and you know Moon Knight's one another one of those guys where it's like they can't cancel those series fast enough you know right well they they just keep throwing them out there mostly to keep the trademark alive right yeah but I remember in the nineties like Stephen Platt was drawing it and he did like three issues and image stolen because like those three issues sold well and the guy just quit Marvel and yeah. then of course he was a guy that couldn't keep a deadline and. And they put him on some character that didn't matter because he didn't couldn't create, right? But like, yeah, like Moon Knight's a cool looking character, and yeah, I, it's like a I visual that works. Is. Yeah, yeah, they tried to clean up, I guess, some of his continuity in the the series that I had read, and then Warren Ellis did a series. Huh. Uh, I like Warren Ellis, right? And again, tried to do some cleanup, and then. Um, I wish I could remember the guy's name or name a single other project he worked on. Um, but he's a really cool artist. He's got this kind of unique style and he did a Moon Knight miniseries after Warren Ellis and he, he was the art on it. And again, they started playing with this idea that Moon Knight's basically, he's just like a crazy superhero. That's his shtick. He's, he's what happens when a, a crazy person or more than normal crazy person gets superpowers. And right. it's, um, that was a really cool book too. So I, it's like, I'm morbidly curious about that movie, but I'm like, this should be, or the TV series, it should be a series. It's like, I'm more confused of like why Shane Chi is being made. It's yeah, like, I, I understand wanting to make more Asian. Uh, China's a big market. No, uh, I get that. But no Moon Knight's problem. supposed to be, Moon Knight's a Disney plus, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and I, and they said the Disney plus series are going to have way bigger budgets than Netflix. Like they're all going to look like Mandalorian. Yeah, I've heard they're basically going to be like six-hour movies. You know what I mean? That's what, yeah. Anthony Mackie was just uh, saying right. uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. I just saw that today. Right, which, when, you know, it's like, when on earth is that ever going to come out, you know? Right. But do you think Michael Keaton's actually going to be in Flash? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I, I, I'm, I'm 
excited, but I'm cautiously excited. It's like, I really like Michael Keaton. Yeah, me too. Uh, he, you know, he's a great Batman. He's a great Bruce Wayne. I think he, making him the so, kind of like Dark Knight Returns Batman is a no-brainer, but, yeah. you know, blowing their load and shoehorning that into a Flash movie is like what I'm like concerned about. Is like, you know, how are they going to fuck this up? Right, and Michael Keaton was an amazing vulture. I'm st- I'm st- every time I watch Homecoming, I'm blown away by his performance. Yeah, you know, and, you know, uh, I've, I haven't seen a lot of Michael Keaton lately, but, you know, I saw him in Birdman. I saw him in, you know, Spider-Man, obviously, and he's great in both of those. And You know, it was a really good movie. Did you see The Founder? Uh, no, the Netflix. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's the McDonald's movie, right? Yeah, yeah, I watched it on Netflix. He's like Ray Kroc, the guy that uh, built McDonald's. He's really good in it, and it's a really interesting movie. yeah. Yeah, it's something I definitely would love, want to check out. He's one of those guys where it's like, he's great in everything. You know, it's yeah. just like, I don't know that I've ever seen a Michael Keaton movie that I didn't like. Like Night Shift, great movie. Beetlejuice, phenomenal movie. It's like, he just, um, even Multiplicity is like a pretty decent comedy. It's not the greatest, you know, but it's like. Yeah, it's, it's not the greatest. There's a bunch, he made a bunch of movies in the 90s nobody remembers that aren't right. that great. Like Pacific Heights and uh, The Dream Team and. Uh, clean and sober. There's like a bunch of movies. Uh, what's the one where he's gonna die and he starts videotaping stuff to his unborn kid? I, oh, I yeah. Oh, he was Jack Frost. Yeah, he was Jack Frost. And they, had already, ma- they had already made a horror movie called Jack Frost. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, there's a scene where the, the snowman appears in someone's shower. And yeah, I'm like, but that water's hot. That like, that water's hot. <laughs> right doesn't even make internal sense <laughs> no so uh i think we've covered a bunch of things <laughs> yeah, we're quite a bit i'm a little bleary <laughs> so, yeah. well you just got off a plane i got just got yeah i just got off a plane i was reading robin um but if uh yeah there's a, there's stuff to talk about which is interesting like the world's figuring out a way to come back yeah, it's slowly but surely, I think we're kind of finding our way. That's why I was so curious about like how things are going with, especially New York. You know, considering what the last three months in New York have looked like. Yeah, I was, um, I was really surprised by, by how busy it was. And granted, I was in a lot of neighborhoods, like busy neighborhoods, so people live sure. there. So it's not like people are like, Let's, we're going to go into the city today. We don't care. It's like right. it's people going like, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave my house and walk down the, and walk down my street. Yeah. So. Um, but if you're not going to leave your house and you're going to listen to the show, how can you find it, Stephen? Well, you can find the show on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and um, Spotify. Spotify. It's, it's, Basically, if you're listening to the podcast anywhere, you can probably find us. That's true. How do we find you? Uh, you can find me on just Instagram at the Brave Butter Pecan. I thought you were on Twitter. You're not on Twitter? Yeah, I think I was on Twitter at some point, and then I uh, I got logged out, and I don't remember my password. And I I, I think Twitter's a cesspool. <laughs> there's no yeah. there's no reason my, to be on Twitter. My Twitter is highly curated. I I still believe in the Twitter of ten years ago, where it was all comedians trying out new jokes. Right, and I that's, think that's my Twitter. Twitter it is, but uh, yeah, mine's highly curated. Problem is, yeah. they're all jokes about Trump. Right. And, uh, well, if you want to follow me, I'm at Not On My Book on Twitter and Instagram. That is the official Captain of Comics feed. Our Facebook page is a page for the show. It is facebook.com slash Captain of Comics, and that's where you can see the news, uh, where we're posting things like Michael Keaton in The Flash and Joe Sinnott and Joel Schumacher passing away. And if you want to listen to the show, uh, 
outside of the ways you can subscribe, you can go directly to radiomisfits.com. We are proud members of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. And click on the Lifestyle tab, and there we are. And we will talk to you next week.